I served in Vietnam. I served in Iraq. No matter where you served or when, VA has benefits for veterans of every generation. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. Welcome to another episode of This Week at VA. I am your host, Timothy Lawson. This is episode 42 and our first episode of August, and I have some pretty awesome content lined up for you today. We'll be talking with Brian Stan, the current CEO of Hire Heroes USA. We'll highlight our veteran of the day and tell you about employment resources provided by VA and the Department of Labor. But first, and probably the coolest of the bunch, is audio from the Medal of Honor ceremony that took place early this week at the White House. James C. McLuhan was awarded our military's highest honor for his selfless acts in Vietnam. Here is his Medal of Honor citation read by a White House military aide. The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, has awarded in the name of Congress the Medal of Honor to Private First Class James C. McLuhan, United States Army. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Private First Class C. McLuhan distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty from May 13th through 15th, 1969 while serving as a combat medic with Charlie Company, 3rd Battalion, 21st Infantry, 196th Light Infantry Brigade, <clears throat> Americal Division. The company air assaulted into an area near Tam Kai and Nuyan Hill. On May 13th, with complete disregard for his life, he ran 100 meters in an open field through heavy fire to rescue a comrade too injured to move and carried him to safety. That same day, 2nd Platoon was ordered to search the area near New Yon Hill when the platoon was ambushed by a large North Vietnamese Army force and sustained heavy casualties. With complete disregard for his life and personal safety, Private First Class McLuhan led two Americans into the safety of a trench while being wounded by shrapnel from a rocket-propelled grenade. He ignored a direct order to stay back and braved an enemy assault while moving into the kill zone on four more occasions to extract wounded comrades. He treated the injured, prepared the evacuation, and though bleeding heavily from shrapnel wounds on his head and entire body, refused evacuation to safety in order to remain at the battle site with his fellow soldiers, who were heavily outnumbered by the North Vietnamese Army forces. On May 14th, the platoon was again ordered to move out towards New Yon Hill. Private First Class McLuhan was wounded a second time by small arms fire and shrapnel from a rocket-propelled grenade while rendering aid to two soldiers in an open rice paddy. In the final phases of the attack, two companies from 2nd North Vietnamese Army Division and an element of 700 soldiers from a Viet Cong regiment descended upon Charlie Company's position on three sides. Private First Class McLuhan again, with complete disregard for his life, went into the crossfire numerous times throughout the battle to extract the wounded soldiers while also fighting the enemy. 
His relentless and courageous actions inspired and motivated his comrades to fight for their survival. When supplies ran low, Private First Class McLuhan volunteered to hold a blinking strobe light in an open area as a marker for a nighttime resupply drop. He remained steadfast while bullets landed all around him and rocket-propelled grenades flew over his prone, exposed body. During the morning darkness of May 15th, Private First Class McLuhan knocked out a rocket-propelled grenade position with a grenade, fought and eliminated enemy soldiers, treated numerous casualties, kept two critically wounded soldiers alive through the night, and organized the dead and wounded for evacuation at daylight. His timely and courageous actions were instrumental in saving the lives of his fellow soldiers. Private First Class McLuhan's personal heroism, professional competence, and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, the AmeriCal Division, and the United States Army. My favorite part of Medal of Honor citations is the line, with disregard to his own life. That is such a true theme of these awards, and it's a reminder of just how selfless and courageous these recipients were. Today's featured interview is with Marine Corps veteran Brian Stan. Some of you may know Brian from his time fighting in the UFC. Now, he's the CEO of Higher Heroes USA. Higher Heroes USA empowers U.S. military members, veterans, and military spouses to succeed in the civilian workforce. Brian is going to talk to us about joining the Marine Corps. He'll share a story from his time in, share his transition, and the efforts at Higher Heroes and how they're contributing to the veteran community. Enjoy. All right, Brian Stan, Marine Corps veteran, Semper Fi, by the way. Um, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, man. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Uh, Brian, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I remember being a young Marine myself watching Brian Stan fight uh, in the UFC, and I've got an opportunity to talk to uh, the likes of Tim Kennedy and others, so it's definitely uh, an honor to get a chance to interview you. Let's go back to... Uh, that moment that we all sort of have in common, and that's the decision to join the United States military. Bring us back to that decision for you. Sure. Uh, you know, I was in high school. It was actually pretty early on before I started getting recruited for football by any of the military academy. It just, you know, I thought about what life was going to be like as an adult, and I thought about normal jobs that all of my friends in high school uh, you know, their families, their parents had, and it all bored me to death. And I always enjoyed different movies, military movies, and I thought of that more as an adventure. And, and seeing as how I seem to take things a lot more serious than most people around me, something I still get criticized for today by my wife, uh, <laughs> I didn't see normal college as the best path for me. And when I went and visited some different schools, I just I didn't see me fitting in, so I figured I'd better go to an institution where people tend to take things a little bit more serious, so I attended the United States Naval Academy, and then while I was there, I was even a little serious at times for that environment, and I went to a place where uh, seriousness is not just accepted, but it's celebrated, and in a place where you could almost get serious to an extreme level. And that's United States Marine Corps, where we really value it. 
you know, we don't need to talk about your your entire experience in the Marine Corps, but is there is there a story that you re, you recall often? Maybe something you fall back on when when sharing stories with others. Maybe the the epitome of your service that you can share with us. You know, I I don't know if I have any one story that really you know is the epitome of my service. I mean. You know, during the time that I was in the Marine Corps, they weren't exactly easy times, lots of tough deployments, and those are stories that, you know, I, I typically reserve for, for unique audience and only in times that I really have to share them where there's some real value to that. I think, you know, the story that really epitomizes my service um, and my leadership was a time where one of my Marines from my second deployment uh, lost his way after we had returned from home. And it was a really difficult deployment, and he had a particularly tough job, and and those experiences come with repercussions that, that don't just immediately go away. And so he lost his way when he was home one time and got himself into some trouble and decided, you know what, I'm just not going to go back. And so he didn't. And I ended up changing to a different command, uh, and I took command of, of a headquarters unit, and uh, basically this, this Marine's package fell to me and became part of my company because he was part of a, a legal platoon that I had of, of Marines that were either being processed out or had legal troubles that they were going through. And so I had the opportunity to review everything, and, and I had seen that he had not come back for over 30 days. And so now he was looking at a, a discharge, a criminal discharge that would follow him forever, and it really was not deserving of someone who put in the type of service he did. And so I reached out, got his wife at first, then I finally got him, and I convinced him to come in and said, hey, look, this isn't going to go away, right? This, this is going to stay with you. You will eventually be discharged via court-martial, and you'll get a discharge that will be a criminal one that will follow you for every job that you ever apply to. People will be able to pull this up, and that you don't deserve it. I know you're scared. I know you're worried, but you come back, and we'll face it together, and he did. He came back, and, and I went to our regimental commander, who was uh, his name is John Love. I believe he's a two-star general in the Marine Corps now, who's one of the most phenomenal leaders I'll ever have the privilege to serve under. And I explained everything this young man had did, and I explained the story of what did take place, how he got into trouble, and part of his decisions from what I could perceive to not come back. And, and this colonel did his due diligence, and, and when that young man had to face him, uh, Instead of going to a court-martial, the colonel decided that he would give him NJP, non-judicial punishment. So he would only face him where the punishments are totally different, and there's no criminal discharge. And and he looked the young man in the eye. He talked about his experiences uh, during his two deployments in Iraq, talked about his decisions and when he got in trouble and why he didn't come back and face it, and basically uh, decided that this young man needed some help and that it was the Marine Corps' job to get him some help. He took his rank, he took some pay, and he punished the young man. But the young man then had an opportunity to be medically discharged out of the Marine Corps instead of criminally discharged out of the Marine Corps. And, you know, when when you're dealing with thousands of Marines at a time and you're preparing, as this colonel was, preparing his regiment for combat, you got a lot of competing priorities. Um but to, to assist, to, to be the liaison that could bring this, this one instance, this one Marine to his attention who was getting a raw deal, um, and, and not necessarily because of anybody's fault. I mean, you know, it started with this Marine's fault, 
but there were some circumstances there that people need to know about. And I think, you know, when, when you're, you know, at that time I was in charge, I was leading 950 Marines and sailors. I was as busy as I've ever been. Um, but real leaders will take the time for every single circumstance, case and person that you need to do that to, because that's what that young man deserved. And, uh, he would be able to move on with his life and, and live a successful life and not have something that followed him for the rest of his days, despite phenomenal service that he gave to his country in some really extreme times. Yeah, that's a, that's a tremendous, that's a story of, of really great leadership. Um, Tell us about your your transition out. What what prompted that? I know that you had you had started um, getting involved in MMA, uh, but what what initially tr- uh, prompted your 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 exit from the Marine Corps? You know, I, I think it was much different than MMA. Obviously, um, MMA became a hobby to me. It was something I fell in love with, and it was what I did after work and what I did on weekends. But I had gotten married before my second tour to Iraq, and I got married quick. You know, me and me and my wife didn't know each other very long, but we were in love. It was real, and we decided to get married before I left. And so, I, you know, it is a difficult thing. I grew up without a father, and when I really look at the career of a Marine infantry officer, specific to me. Because of my performance levels and the trajectory, the trajectory of my career, it looked like I was going to spend an awful lot of time overseas. I had some other opportunities I was getting recruited for uh, that were special and unique that really get A-type personalities like me excited, which would have led to more time in third world countries uh, fighting lots of different people's battles. And I, I had made the decision that, you know what, um, I'm going to live once. And do I want to spend the bulk of my prime years doing one thing or do I want to have varied experience in life? And I made the decision that if I'm going to get out of the Marine Corps, it's best to do it now. Because if I just do another tour and do another three to four years, then I'm going to want to do another one. And then it just makes sense to finish your 20. And that's kind of how you get sucked into doing it. And for me, all I wanted to do was command. I wanted to lead. And as an officer, you end up spending a lot of time as a staff officer before you get the opportunity to command, and command can be very short-lived at times. You could you could work seven years and get command for one year, yeah. um, and, and that to me just just didn't attract me. You know, I, I wanted to go command to command to command to command, and and I wanted to lead Marines. I don't want to do any staff duty time. That's just not what I was built for. So, I made the choice to get out, prioritize my family, and and take advantage of some other things. And it was not an easy decision. I mean, there's days constantly where I missed the Marine Corps and I don't know if I'll ever be as good as a, at a job that I was as being an infantry officer, but those are the decisions we make and, and my priority to my, my family is a higher priority to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just quickly, and, and, and you, you can share as much as, you, as, as you'd like, um, but a lot of veterans, when they separate from the military, they experience some sort of a mil- emotional challenge or emotional crisis. Is that anything that you experienced? Uh, you know, I don't think I did, and the reason why is I was so busy, and at the time I was a professional fighter, and when you have a scheduled fight against somebody, it doesn't matter how far the fight is, whether it's two months, three months, six weeks away, four weeks away, that opponent is going to own a portion of your mind until the day of that fight, whether it's 10%, 15%, they're always there. They're always on your mind because you're getting ready to compete against them. They want to knock you out. You want to knock them out. You're going to be doing it. I would be doing it on national TV in front of a lot of people. And so 
that drew my focus. He's finding a place to live for my family, finding a job for my family, all these different stresses. Um, and I had a job before I had, I had transitioned out, but I didn't know what I was doing in that job. You know, I, I wasn't even qualified for it. So there were different stresses on my mind so that I didn't have the time to really go through an emotional challenge until it settled, right? Until that fight was over. And until, you know, I was sitting in a cubicle one day thinking, man, my last job, I had a corner office. I was in charge of 950 people. Now I'm in charge of myself and I'm looking at two spreadsheets on Excel to see if there's (laughs) duplicate hospital names. And I'm sitting next to some 24 year old kid. And I mean, the work I'm doing is meaningless to me right now. That was a real challenge for me. Yeah. So Uh, that. I say that that kind of leads into the the like part B of this question is how how did you find your renewed purpose after the military, which is another challenge that many veterans have. Man, the, the number one thing was I realized I'm still in control, and that ultimately it comes down to me, my decisions, and my attitude. If I sit there unhappy in my current state, and I sit there and tell myself that I deserve more. And I then sit there and wait for somebody to drop something on my lap that is more, and, and I play the victim, then I'm wrong. Then the situation I'm in is going to last longer. I'm never going to dig myself out of it. Yeah. But if I take, hey, this is the taskings I'm, I'm being given. Obviously, I need to show these people that I'm capable of more. I need to prove to them that they can invest more in me, they can give me more responsibility. And when I started to to hold myself accountable for my situation, vice blaming anybody else, then then circumstances changed quickly. Quickly then the chief financial officer for the company handed me his entire real estate portfolio. We've got 19 office locations, we're doing another acquisition now, that's gonna be an additional six. I need someone to negotiate the leases, to deal with all the construction processes, to do all the office moves, and and, and create a standard amongst all of our offices because these are all companies we've acquired that have their own culture. We need it to be one culture. That was a big project. Then the chief operating officer of the company said, hey, the CEO started this nonprofit idea. He wants to help veterans get jobs. They're right down the hall. They're not really doing anything. Um, We don't have anybody in charge. Can you take it over and make something of it? Okay, got it. And so I had these two jobs that I was then going to do in addition to now fighting in the UFC, which, right. which was a great challenge, especially because at the time I really didn't know how to fight. I was just kind of faking the funk and doing it on the weekends for fun. <laughs> so now I, I, I somehow changed my attitude, focused and held myself accountable and then found myself into three full-time jobs, vice one, uh, which is a whole other story. But that attitude switch, that focus was really what what got me out of it and is is a big part of the advice I give to to not just military veterans but everybody. Anytime you find yourself thinking or playing the victim role and and not holding yourself accountable, you're in trouble. Because at the end of the day, nobody cares about us as much as we care about us. And nobody has more control over our future as we do. And we have to seize that no matter how negative our circumstances are, no matter how many steps behind everybody else we are, you know, we've got to catch up. We've got no other choice because nobody else is going to come back and pull us up to the pack. Yeah. Uh, wow. Let's um, let's talk about 
uh, hire here is USA and the, and the work that's being done over there. And uh, according to the notes that I have, uh, 17,000 plus confirmed hires, uh, more than 36,000 professional resumes worked, uh, more than 252,000 career canceling sessions. Uh, and then the stat that if you can speak on it, I'd really like to hear the insight on this, uh, more than $205 million economic impact. Um, that's that's some pretty tremendous numbers, uh, and for those that are unfamiliar with Hire Heroes, uh, they empower military members, veterans, and spouses to succeed in the civilian workforce, and essentially helping veterans rediscover uh, a purposeful uh, professional life, which is, um, as someone who's worked a lot in veteran suicide and veteran depression, purpose is such a main driver of whether or not a veteran is going to emotionally succeed in their transition. So, Brian, if you can, on any of those numbers, especially that last one, maybe you can start with sort of your uh, responsibilities and, and your your efforts, but let's get into the work that's being done at Higher Heroes USA. Sure. So when, when you calculate the economic impact, you, you, people don't realize that the Department of Defense typically pays around a billion dollars a year in unemployment uh, benefits to veterans. So when veterans transition out and they go on unemployment, that hits the defense budget. And so that obviously costs our government. That That is a bill to the taxpayers. When, when that person then finds employment, they're now paying income tax, and that company is paying payroll tax. So it is a big swing. When you take the average starting salary for the minimum we're helping, which is around $50,000 a year, it's around an eleven dollars to $12,000 swing on average for every single person we place. Yeah. And, and when you look at the cost per confirmed hire for us, being around you know $1,000 per that's a major swing where we're, we're spending a thousand donated dollars to help someone find a meaningful career. And then back into the economy, you're going to get eleven dollars to $12,000 back. That's an incredible return on the public's investment. And that's the purpose of the 501c3 status. And when people evaluate where they want to put their philanthropic dollars, I always encourage them to do their research. Don't go with the one with the best commercial. Don't go with the one with the best marketing plan because so often these organizations are sour. So often they are spending your money irresponsibly. Some of the biggest and best known veteran service organizations are some of the absolute worst out there. And I would be ashamed to be a part of them. And, and I'd be ashamed if I was spending other people's money that way and then marketing it to make it look like we're doing a lot of good. It, it's sad, and it's, it is certainly not just in the veteran space. I mean, there's only no. a few in the veteran space. When you go outside of that, I mean, the biggest brand when it comes to cancer, the biggest brand in philanthropy is one of the worst nonprofits in the country, yet yeah. they bring in millions and millions of dollars. It's really sad. That's that. As the CEO of this organization, that's one of my number one responsibilities. Is this organization being run properly, transparently, and responsibly? Because at the end of the day, other people, other endowments, other organizations and grants are being given to us to accomplish a mission. And we have to stretch every single donated dollar as far as we can to maximize that value to solve this problem and help people with long-term impacts. In addition to that, obviously, there, there's a lot of relationship management. There, there, there's a lot of, of leadership and holding people accountable. You know, at Higher Heroes, we run this like a business, and we set a standard. There are metrics every week, every month, every quarter for our employees 
and we track everything we do as Salesforce so that we can maintain the type of data that you spit off. Every update we make to a resume is recorded. Every time we do a practice interview, it's summarized and it's recorded. Every time we do a career counseling session where maybe we're advising this veteran on how to activate their network. We're building them a LinkedIn site and teaching them how to use it and connect with people and, and making them realize that veterans have a huge alumni network. Huge. We just don't leverage it. We don't think of it that way because it's not a college. Yeah. And so there's a lot that goes into this, but taking an extraordinarily detailed approach to it is is how you make it work. Yeah. It, it, you uh, you mentioned the, the veteran alumni network. And I, and, I experienced that when I when I first started podcasting way back in the day when I was doing a podcast for Veteran Empire. Uh, it was amazing how many yeses I got to guest invitations simply because I made the veteran connection. Like, hey, you're a veteran. I'm a veteran. I want to feature you on my show. Uh, and how quickly um, just that one commonality, that one uh, common thread between us always led to uh, some sort of collaboration um, I'm interested, do you have any data or, or any insight on um, your success rate from the second you spend your first dollar on a veteran to the, like, what's your, like, can you, do you have predictive sure. analytics on, like, on, we've, we've yeah, you came to me. the right place. We've got, we've got all the analytics. I so love it. For, for us, our conversion rate in 2017 is over 50%. And, and when I say conversion rate, that is people who go onto our website and register say, hey, I, I want your help. Over 50% of them right now are being confirmed into jobs. Now, 83% or higher are enlisted service members, so statistically more likely to, to realize long-term unemployment. Yeah. And, and that, that is just people that register on the website. If you go a step further and you say, hey, people that go through phase one of our program, right, they, they go through an initial assessment, they get an excellent resume tailored to them and the jobs they're going after. They get some initial advice on how to search for jobs and, and deliver a verbal value proposition. That conversion rate is over 70%. Because you got to understand, when, when people just register on your website and say, I need help, yeah. there's a percentage of them that we're window shopping, that we're going to contact to do that initial assessment and they're never going to pick up the phone. Right. And that's counted in the 50%. So for the people that engage with us, they are 70 per, 70%. Now, there are certainly people that go through portions of our program that end up confirmed into a meaningful job that we just can't track because they may use us for a couple weeks, get a resume, do a practice interview, and then we never hear from them again. But we can't count them. We'll count the work we did with them, but we can't count them as a confirmed hire because we never got a hold of them to confirm where they work, their salary, where they satisfy with our services, et cetera. And as you know, veterans sometimes, hey, they're going to take what they want, and then they're going to move, and they're going to go, and you know, they're going to forget to get back to you for things like that, and that's okay. Yeah, That's okay. I mean, we're, we're still here providing all of these services for them for free. I mean, imagine how many regular people would want that, right? So I've got my own personal career coach. Every time I contact them, they're going to contact me back. They're going to personally tailor a resume. Most of the resumes we get here, their initial resumes are terrible, right? Well, what we do to them is a complete makeover, and they're, they're excellent. Uh, but through that process, they're learning now how to communicate what they did. So instead of saying, well, all I did was X, Y, and Z in the military, now they understand how to quantify their accomplishments, how to communicate their accomplishments in a language that anybody can understand, not just us veterans, because we have a language all our own that nobody knows what we're talking about with all the yeah. acronyms involved, and then have the ability to walk into a room and communicate that verbally as they network and as they meet people. 
well, this is what I do. This is what I'm qualified. This is what I'm skilled in. This is what I would like to do now, and here's the geographic location I would like to do it in. These are things that none of us think of when we're getting out of the military. We, we typically know where we'd like to live, and that's about it. We have right. no idea what we want to do, what the culture is like in that industry, uh, and, and how we're going to go about finding opportunities for people to hire us into doing those things. And so through our process, we're helping to confirm that. And, and it also reduces, uh, it, it reduces how quickly people leave their first job. It increases retention rates because now veterans are making a more educated decision on the jobs they apply to and the jobs they go after and the offer letters that they accept because these are positions that they've put some thought into. They've strategized over and say, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I, I love that. And Brian, I definitely want to be mindful of your time, uh, but I, I still I have a few more questions regarding professional life uh, for veterans, and you can take as little time uh, to answer these as possible. Uh, but but um, you touched on it a little bit. One of the problems that I had when I got in the military is I was only, in my first year, I was applying to jobs that I was qualified for, but not ones that I necessarily thought I would enjoy. Um, do you find that to be a, a, a challenge with veterans? We do. You know, we, we find... We find a challenge just in the, in the fact that they have a hard time deciphering some of these job uh, descriptions and job listings. They don't know completely what they are qualified for. And so they may see one line in it that deters them from applying and say, nope, not going to apply to that because I, I don't have this one little bullet here. Where we know companies put a lot of things in there, but there are a lot of companies that will give some, some space, right? If you get an A-team player with a phenomenal attitude with some great experience, you can teach them the specific skills they need for the job. You can't teach someone to have that type of creativity, leadership, decision-making ability, uh, effectiveness and efficiency expertise when it comes to process improvement. You can't teach people all those things if someone has years of experience in extreme environments with that. You can teach them how to work Excel, or you could teach them how to use something like Salesforce. Yeah. Um, so there, there's there's some flexibility built into those job listings that sometimes veterans don't decipher, and so it deters them from applying to those, and that really limits them. Uh, and, and then the other thing is, too, is they, they don't use – there's so many tools out there now to really look into and understand the culture of a company before you accept their offer, before you decide to apply and interview right. with that company. And that's important because everybody enjoys something a little different. The other challenge that I see in the veteran community a lot, and it's not just them. There's a lot of people like this, but specific in the veteran community, we come out of the military. We had a uniform. We had a code. You know, There's a lot of things that ignite passion and enthusiasm for that job. You may never find that again, especially to that degree. And so I hear it all the time, well, I really need to work somewhere where I'm passionate. And my response to that veteran is typically, well, you also need to be passionate about paying your bills and putting food on the table. <laughs> How about that? Because if, if I took a poll right now of everybody who works in America, I'm going to guess that over 70% of them say, eh, not really passionate about what I do for a living. Yeah. Right? But we have to – we do what we have to do so that we can afford to do what we want to do. And so I, I say that phrase to veterans all the time. Don't, don't put your family at risk. Right, most I don't care how passionate you are about a job in week one. It's going to eventually become a job at some point. 
uh, and you've got to be able to deal with that and every day come in and provide value and, and not, not take it for granted just because it doesn't ignite your passion maybe the same way the military did. You can't just live in the past. You know, this, this is just being adult, and this is, this is the real world. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your uh, resumes come in and they're a mess. Um, other than translating military um, skill set to civilian, what's maybe the number one blunder you see in most people's resumes? Oh, God, the re- I mean, number one, some of the email addresses and contact information they'll leave on there. You <laughs> know, Dragon I mean, Master I've 29. <laughs> a big Papa Pump. Uh, big. <laughs> Big Papa Panty Dropper. Uh, I mean, we've we've seen some real, real gems. And they put that on their resume. Email address, and they have it on their resume. Yeah, I had I had one kid. I had one kid who wanted to really, you know, he didn't want to just put his military experience in there, and he managed a uh, a sandwich shop before he got in the military. And he had, you know, I made fantastic subs at such and such, you know, you know, hoagie shop. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, that's. that's reword this a little bit yeah because the job you're applying to you're not making sandwiches here um so i mean there's and then the acronyms you know forgetting to spell out acronyms or just avoiding them all together but but those are some of the the biggest blunders and then obviously you've got to specify you've got to tailor that resume to the specific job that you're looking at so if, if you see in the job listing job requirements some certain key things there make sure that that where where you answer the bell for those that that's up front and on that resume right away within the first eight seconds, they're going to start reading some of those keywords and key skills that are looking for on your resume. It should be in the summary of qualifications. It should be highlight those in your first position that you have on there. Yeah. Um, leadership versus followership. One thing I've noticed that veterans always want to harp so much on how great of a leader they can be, but very few uh, um, rem- remember to also like emphasize that they're a good follower. Is that something you see as well? Absolutely. I, I I agree with that a hundred percent, and that it's great to tell people how well you manage people, but it's also important to let them know that look, I have I have worked for a very diverse group of managers, and I have found a way to make that relationship work, understand what's expected of me, and make sure that I'm delivering for for what they want, and that I can mold my style to different management. And I think that's very important because one of the things civilian companies are always focused on is culture and chemistry. And a lot of times when you've got a bunch of candidates applying to a job, you've got a ton of people that are qualified for it, that could do the job well. What is going to make your decision, what's going to ultimately have people when they vote on who they want to bring in is how well are they going to fit in? You know, do do we like this person? Are they going to get along? Yeah. And and it's very important for veterans to highlight the fact that they are used to being on very diverse teams. And a matter of fact, in the military, you don't get to pick your teams, right? We don't get to interview people and say, yeah, I want this one, this one, and this one. You get what you get, and you don't pitch a fit. You got to make that work, and that's that takes a real skill set. These these service members are put into different squads and groups, and then they're just forced. Hey. Get along with these folks. So they've got a lot of experience in that, that they bring to the civilian world. Yeah. All right. Last couple of questions to finish up, ones that my audience really enjoy. First one, uh, what is a skill set or discipline you learned in the military that's contributing to your success today? Creativity. And, I, and you know, we didn't have specific training on it. I mean, we, we did a lot of training to, to make decisions. When, when all hell breaks loose and things go wrong, find a way. 
and you have to improvise an awful lot. We did a lot of training to improve our improv skills, and I think that's something that veterans don't get enough credit for is their creativity. Most people look at us as very standardized and disciplined, but we are much more creative than people realize. Did that apply to your MMA career as well? Applied to my MMA, I mean, yeah, because I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. So I, I had to figure. I, I won a whole bunch of fights I wasn't supposed to win, and, and it took being creative. It, it took improvising and seeing openings and seizing moments um, to finish fights at times that that was really necessary. Yeah, and then uh, maybe outside of your organization, um, what's a veteran or a veteran organization in our community right now that uh, have you really excited right now and inspiring in what they're doing? Ah. Uh... I know there, there are tough questions. There's but. a bunch. So I'm trying. Yeah, no, it's a good question though. It's a good question. Um, you know, I have to bring up the Travis Manion Foundation. I think that uh, some of the things they're doing for survivors, uh, people who've been through traumatic experiences. I mean, those are great. But I really like how they're highlighting um, bringing the character that we prioritize in the military and bringing it to the community. So they take veterans who have recently transitioned or who are transitioned and get them out in the community to talk about character and do character development at schools and in local community centers. And that really helps them because where we're helping them find jobs, this helps them, you know, really be looked upon. Hey, you know, this, this person's unique, this person's someone I look up to, which really helps to lift the brand of veterans, which is really important for us. People don't want to hire people that are victims. People don't want to hire people that are broken. And while Hollywood only shows us as those two things, yeah. it is so far from the truth. So I, I like what the Man Travis Manion Foundation is doing, not to mention it's named after one of my best friends who died in Fallujah. Yeah, very well. That's uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, unrelated, does McGregor have a shot against Mayweather? Well, you've always got a shot, right? You've yeah. always got a shot, but he's going into his world in a completely different sport. So yeah. he doesn't have much of one. Um, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, Connor's going to win in this. He's going to make more money than any mixed martial artist has ever made <laughs> in a fight by far. And that's if the win, right? If he's back in the octagon, I'll be surprised. Um, I think you're going to see uh, McGregor's going to start his own promotion eventually. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's going to cause some disruption in the space. Yeah, very well. Um, Brian, how can people get a hold of Hire Heroes USA if they're interested in your services and, and, and getting involved? Absolutely. Go to Hire, H-I-R-E, HeroesUSA.org, and they can click right there and register. Or if it's a company that wants to hire veterans, we've got tabs for that. And if they want to support us, you know, it, it, it is not a it, – it costs us around $50 average to put out these resumes. It costs us around $10 per counseling session. So if people want to support us, it doesn't take a massive amount, and, and they could absolutely do so, and they could just click Donate on our website. Yeah, wonderful. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service and your continued service now to veterans uh, in the space. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger. I still had the addictions. But we didn't talk about that. came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go... Go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. It's been mentioned many times on this podcast and is brought up in conversations about veterans' issues, but employment is a major topic in discussion when thinking about transition. 
The VA has partnered with the Department of Labor to give you career advice, help building your resume, and help you access employers who want to hire veterans and military spouses. Visit veterans.gov for information on finding a job, starting your own business, and more. Again, that is veterans.gov. Today's Veteran of the Day is John Wolf Wagner. Wolf served in the Army from 1981 to 2016. He served three tours to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, leading more than 160 missions. We thank Wolf for his service. To read Wolf's full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That's it for episode 42. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know there are a lot of options out there, so I thank you for taking the time to listen to these veterans and their important stories. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. If you have a question you'd like to have addressed here on the show, email us newmedia at va.gov. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.